What's your name? John Shea. What's your primary job and how long have you held it? Well, baseball writer at the San Francisco Chronicle since 2000, but in the Bay Area since 1988. What's the name of your new book? 24, Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our primary topic is a book about the ball player known as the Say Hey Kid, and it's written by a scribe who we say, Shay Hey! This is going to be fun and also a little bit awkward because John Shea was one of my mentors. He taught me a lot about being a reporter, and now he's going to teach us what it's like to write a book about a legend who's already had millions of words written about him. John Shea is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Shay Hey Kid. Somebody called me that in high school. Is that right? Who called yeah. you who called you the Shay Hey Kid in high school? A guy named Fran Mancia in uh, freshman high school on the way to the bus every morning. And it stuck? Well, it went away for about 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> when did it come back? Who was the second person to call you the Shay Hey Kid? Well, then for my column in 2000, they wanted just kind of a you know, personal uh, slant to the name of the column. And so they named it Shay Hey, uh, like a, a, a part of this big Sunday page we used to do. The little column was called Shay Hey. All right. So I joked with you that I wanted to talk about the Daily Aztec because we both started as student journalists at San Diego State. And in order to set the tone for where you're at now, I want to go back and ask you, what was the most memorable story that you wrote as a student journalist at the Daily Aztec? Oh, my gosh. Whew. That was a long time ago. I started off writing rugby and then got elevated to women's volleyball, which I love basketball and covering Tony Gwynn. And that was cool because he was a stand-up guy. Then he was like the leader. Then he was a great quote. Then he's like, still the best guy I ever covered. Um, I covered some football. I covered most memorable story. Probably Michael Cage who later played with the supersonics trailblazers up there. Uh, He just kind of gave me access to, his pad with some other teammates uh, of his at the time. And we just kind of sat around. They were, they ordered a whole bunch of Jack in the box uh, hamburgers. And I just kind of chronicled the life and times of college kids who play hoops and what their, what their basic lifestyle might be on any given day. When did you realize I like this and, and and I'm good enough that I can do this for a living? Oh gosh. Well, I also was doing some broadcasting at the radio station, KCR, 
and it was a flip of the coin. And then I realized, wait a minute, in newspapers, you can have it back. You can edit it. Someone can look at it before it goes to print. And in radio, what you say now is there forever, and you can't you can't come back and correct it. Well, okay, all right. I'll take a little more time and write a story then, and have another set of eyes look at it. But anyway, at the time, obviously, there's a lot more opportunities back then in the early '80s around San Diego County. There was all kinds of newspapers. I think I closed them all down, and week weeklies, semi weeklies. Uh, small dailies, mid-sized uh, dailies, big dailies. I think I hit them all. It was a great experience for someone because you could do it all back then. You just didn't come in as a writer. You came in, you laid it out. You're a you know sports editor in effect, and you know you were even in the back shop in these non-union gigs, uh, pasting up the old copy onto the page. So it was a great experience back in the day, and I you know I wish some younger folks could could have that experience. What were some of the biggest breaks for you. You mentioned getting those different, um, those different opportunities, a variety of different places. Uh, who, who was a person or two, or what was a, a bigger break that helped propel you on to, to covering more and more, especially baseball? Well, in 1986, I was a college writer and backed up on the Padres. And <laughs> I remember the, uh, the, the eve of the first day of spring training, um, something happened, uh, one thing led to the other. And the next morning they appointed me the Padre beat writer first day of spring training. And this was an afternoon paper and I had gotten up to work the 5am shift and then did some kind of player of the week right after on uh, field hockey or whatever. And then by nine o'clock, I'm the Padre beat writer and 12 o'clock I get into my, uh, old Datsun truck and start driving through the desert from San Diego to Yuma, where the Padres were at the time. And my first job covering baseball full time, they don't have a manager. Uh, There's chaos throughout. Um, Nobody knew who was in charge. And it took a few days for that to resolve. But um, it, it it was a very long spring training and the toughest spring training I've ever covered and been a piece of cake since then because I can always look back if I ever have a tough day and I said man this does not equate to anything I went through in 1986. Who was for me it was you and Nick Peters who were big-time mentors that would uh, help me and be mischievous at certain times who were other writers that were um, guiding mentors to you? Well, Glenn Schwartz was from my hometown in Marin County and went to my high school, much older than I am. (laughs) But I read him, you know, through high school. And he, at you know, young age was covering the Oakland A's in the 70s and and the San Francisco Giants in the late 70s, covered some really good teams. And he was working at the afternoon paper at the time, the San Francisco Examiner. And compared with the Chronicle guys who were more just nuts and bolts, you know, here's the game, here's the score, and here's what happened. Glenn would just go off on something you wouldn't even recognize by watching the game. And he would try to detail it in a manner that was very creative. And I said, wow, that is cool. Just a twist. Cause we know what happened in the game. We heard it on the radio. Um, you know, we didn't have internet or TV access like we do now 24 seven, but we kind of know the score. We knew, knew the details, but Glenn kind of took it to a new level and wrote it like, basically we write it now now that everybody knows the score the minute it's posted or you can see the game live 
And then Nick Peters, you had mentioned, he always taught me that don't be the, don't be the story. You know, you're not a player. Um, don't get big headed. Uh, don't be a know-it-all. Let them tell the story. Don't interfere. You know, get out of the way. Ask the question. Be respectful. Uh, but that doesn't mean ask softball questions. Still ask the hardball questions. And sometimes avoid the pack. If there's a big scrum around player A, go to player B. Get something different. Get something exclusive. In 1992, you wrote a book with Ricky Henderson. The title is Off Base, Confessions of a Thief. What were the biggest lessons that you learned about collaborating with an athlete when you put together that book? That was wonderful. I was much younger then, and he was the greatest player in the game. He was coming off an MVP season in 90, and I met with him throughout the entire offseason. Um, that, that, was, that was wonderful because we're, we're the same age. So um, I, I kind of understood where he was coming from, but obviously – not really, because, um, you know, he, he, he grew up, uh, uh, you know, born in Chicago and, um, you know, came to Oakland as a young lad, and played high school ball. He was the best football player in the school, best basketball player in the school, baseball. He could do it all. You know, he, they were saying he was going to be the next OJ. Anyway, he's a five-tool talent, uh, stolen base hero, and – um, just got to know him, you know, the same thing as Willie, just, just, uh, hanging out, listening, respecting, appreciating, uh, asking questions, writing stories that, uh, are, are fair, you know, it could be critical. It be, could be complimentary. Uh, but you know, you gain people's trust and, uh, I, I seem to gain, you know, Ricky's trust. And that was a true autobiography. Um, you know, I went back and spoke with family and friends and, uh, ballplayers and teammates and opponents to ask the right questions to present to Ricky. And he, obviously he's one of the most creative talkers uh, of our lifetime. And the way he puts things in perspective is like no other, the way he played the game is like no other. And, um, at the time, at the time I said, okay, you know, he, he's whatever age he was. I said, okay, he's probably got a few more years. Little did I know that was like half of his career. And he played you know, well into his forties. He played, uh, independent ball at age 45 and I always joked with them I said I said Ricky you're going to miss your hall of fame induction because you're going to have a game <laughs> you mentioned the uh, the voice and people know Ricky for his for his speech as much as his exploits on the field how how do you go about capturing his voice so that it sounds like him for that book it's a, it's a good one because autobiographies are tougher because you kind of have to fill in the gaps and you have to pass it by him. Obviously he has to check off on it, but how much does he really remember, um, you know, the, the game in mid May as a Yankee when they were in Baltimore and he got these big hits. And, um, and so I have to, you know, remind him of these, not remind him, just bring him up because he was still in his prime and let him go off on it. And, and the key with Ricky and Willie all these years later is to present it in his voice. Too many autobiographies where the entire book is first person. He said, there's no way those are his words, you know, and I've read some of these. I said, yeah, come on, that, he never said that. So I tried to make sure there wasn't one word in there where you could, you, somebody could have come along and say, Ricky never said that. Well, when it comes to Willie Mays, you mentioned the word trust earlier. 
describe for us how it is that you present to him or how it come, um, the process comes together to work on this book together. Well, I left San Diego. I, like I said, I covered the Padres through the 87 season and they finally got a manager and then they fired him. They got another one, Larry Boa. And, uh, I covered him and I left and they fired him. So anyway, I came up to the Bay area in 88, started covering the giants of Roger Craig. And then that morphed into Dusty Baker into, uh, what Felipe Alou into Bruce Bochy and through it all, the one constant was Willie Mays. He was brought back into the organization in 1986 by Bob Lurie and Al Rosen, who ran the team at the time. And uh, some old timers might remember that Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle were actually suspended for baseball and, and for silly reasons. Basically they were PR guys for casinos and doing nothing but signing autographs and playing golf with clients. But there was no baseball pension at the time. And, and Bowie Kuhn said, no, man, you can't be affiliated with casinos and still be in baseball. So he threw him out of baseball. And luckily, Peter Uberoff came along after the 84 Olympics and took over the commissioner, commissionership. And the first thing he did was bring them back into the game. So this was late 84, early 85. And by 86, Willie's back with the Giants. I show up in 88. And, you know, as a young reporter, he was in the clubhouse all the time, unlike any other Hall of Famer I've ever seen. He's in the clubhouse all the time, before every game. Just last month in spring training, before it ended, he was there for a month in the clubhouse before every home game at Scottsdale Stadium. If a young player wants to come up to him, if uh, if a coach or a manager or a broadcaster or front office official, he's there. He makes himself available. Peter McGowan back in 93 gave him a lifetime contract, and he's honoring that. He's, he's, he's taking responsibility for – for, for the gig, you know, it's not just a figurehead. I'm Willie Mays. I can, I, I can go and come as I please. He's there. So I was there. He was there and he'd hold court, um, very lively court. And, uh, I always wanted to be part of it and not to interfere or interrupt, but to listen and learn and watch. And, you know, from there I wrote a bunch of stories, especially in 2000, when the Examiner and Chronicle merged, there were two of everything, two giant writers, two A's writers. So Henry Shulman stayed on the Giants, which he wanted to do, and I was in the new position of national baseball writer. And that kind of gave me an opportunity to step back and not cover the details of the game so much, but analyze what's going on with the club, with the game, uh, with the players, and, of course, with Willie Mays because he's there. So that led to more detailed conversations and interviews and, you know, he trusted me. I wrote a bunch about him, and he must have thought it was fair because he kept talking to me. And about 15 years ago, I asked him, I said, what about a book, Willie? And he said, I'd like to see a book in classrooms. So inspirational book, life stories, and lessons from the Say Hey Kid. And that was 15 years ago when you first brought up the idea to him. Yeah, 2005. He's just turned 75. So why did it take 15 years? <laughs> what are, you, are you saying I missed deadline? Yeah, you missed a bunch of deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually did. Um, we had different proposals, different angles. Uh, I, I spoke with 200 people plus, and I wasn't going to finish this book until I spoke with Hank Aaron. I wasn't going to finish this book until I spoke with everybody who was around 
who was meaningful in Willie's life or had a great Willie Mae story. Many of them have passed. I mean, I spoke with Alvin Dark, who uh, probably his last couple interviews was with me. Um, Willie's teammate in New York and Willie's manager in the early 60s. You know, Willie McCovey, Johnny Antonelli, Peter McGowan. That was his last interview. And he was thrilled he was going to be in a Willie Mays book. Uh, Frank Robinson, you know, sad story. Frank passed. Um, you know, many, uh, many players and associates ha- have gone since I've spoken with them. But it just needed to be complete. It needed to be the ultimate Willie book. It needed to be his legacy. It needed to be right and accurate and fair and complete and yes the publisher which we finalized a deal like in 2018 when we were okay we're ready i think we're ready to go we have everything we have the title we have the the 24 chapters we have 24 lessons we have uh 24 uh stories and you know two years later you know it, it just comes out this week so when you were mentioning spring training and Willie and your first year covering baseball, that, that made me think of my first year covering baseball, which was 2000, my rookie year as a beat writer for the Oakland Tribune. And I remember that the first day that Willie Mays arrived in the clubhouse, that's when it hit me. That, and it's no longer, oh, hey, look, there's Willie Mays, and I get to meet him. It was, I got to write a story because – all the newspapers are going to have a story. Like that's the story of the day. Willie showed up. Willie holds court. And, and I remember in his high pitched voice, he would always say, Rada, Rada, Rada. We got any pitching this year, Rada? Hey, we got any pitching, Rada? Or who's playing center? Yeah. Or who's He's still center? asking who's playing center, by the way. <laughs> He's still waiting for a center fielder. <laughs> yeah, he loves talking. You know, it's not me asking him. It's not you asking him. He's asking you, Josh, you know, what, what, how are we going to be this year? You know, we, we got enough pitching. You know, who's going to hit third? You know, who's playing center? Because in his day, everybody could hit in that Giants lineup. You know, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda, Jimmy Ray Hart, Bobby Bonds later. I mean, they were stacked. And the Giants recently haven't been stacked, if you notice <laughs> the standings. And uh, <laughs> But they won a few championships. 10, 12, and 14. And that, that kind of hit Willie pretty good. Because if you remember, his lone World Series championship was 1954. And he was a kid. He was thinking, okay, this is the first of many. And he lost in 62. He got to the playoffs in 71 as a 40-year-old who hit 18 homers, stole 23 bags and 26 attempts, led the league in on-base percentage, led the league in steals, was a three-hitter on a division-winning Giants team in 71. And then two years later with the Mets, he's in the World Series. So the only World Series, and what I like to say, actually he was in five World Series, including the 1948 Negro League World Series, which was the final one in Negro League history. Interest was waning, Jackie was up, and more attention was on the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Birmingham Black Barons and these other clubs. Willie, I think, was an inspirational force in those Bruce Bochy championship seasons because he was always around. If you notice the pictures from the White House the following year when they go and celebrate, it's always Obama because he was there for, eight, for all the time they won championships. And Willie's always in the front row. And at every parade, Willie's always 
you know, in one of the cars. It was meaningful to him. Um, he took pride in it. And after the first one in 2010, after the final game in Texas, Brian Wilson with the strikeout, uh, there were, before I went to the clubhouse, I was on the phone to two people. I called Willie Mays to get his reaction. And he said he had teared up because he knows how special it was for all these guys, first in San Francisco, first since 1954 in the organization. Because as he said, um, you just don't know when that's going to happen again. For Willie, it didn't. He didn't win another championship after 54. Little did he know that they win in 12 and 14. And the other call was from my daughter, who, who was real tiny at that time, and just said, can I talk to Tim Lincecum? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, maybe not. <laughs> but uh, no, no, that's that's a side thing. But she uh, she was very emotional watching the game, so she had to call her dad. She was a little tiny tyke. Those stories are so great, and I think that illustrates <laughs> when the the difference between the beat writer who has to crank something out and get all the nuts and bolts, and the rush to jump on Twitter and give your hot take, and an experienced reporter who realizes I'm going to call Willie Mays, and. Side note, how cool is it that you can be like, oh, hey, I have Willie Mace's number. I'm just going to call him. But to call Willie because that, per, that, that ties history, getting Willie Mace's reaction in mm-hmm. that moment. And I, I, I go back to that night, and that's all I wrote that night. It was history. You know, my lead, obviously, was Willie Mays. Cody Ross was the hero of that postseason. He came up in August from the Marlins. He showed up in mid-August. And he's a World Series champion. All these giants, hundreds of them, throughout their San Francisco history, going back to you know Bobby Bonds and Will Clark and Jack Clark and Chili Davis and you know everybody who suited up, um, Cy Young Award winners, MVPs, Kevin Mitchell. Uh, they didn't win it. And then Cody Ross comes along in mid-August and he wins it. And he's like a hero. He's the MVP of the LCS. Gets big hits in the division series and. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't even a starter in September. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just an amazing game and amazing how that works. But that whole night I spent every minute in the clubhouse thinking history, thinking history, because Will Clark was in the clubhouse. He lost the World Series in 89 to the A's. J.T. Snow was in the clubhouse. He lost the World Series to the Angels in 2002. And both of them were as, ex- as excited as Tim Lincecum and all these other guys. And May's, you know, from his home, same, same thing. So I'm talking to all these people about the impact of what all these kids in, you know, Bumgarner and Posey, you know, they're not old enough to drink and they're winning championships here. So, it, yeah, it, it, it's, I, I love history, man. And this book is all about that. And it's really a way for me to write, if this is a phrase that is usable, new history. Because we know that Mays hit the five home runs or four home runs in Milwaukee. We know he made the great catch at the Polo Grounds. We know he hit that walk-off home run for a one nothing win in the 16th inning against Warren Spahn to make Juan Marshall a winner. But every story, every book about him that details this stuff is always quoting the folks at the time what they said. Well, I want to know what these guys say now. I want to know what Willie says about it now. I want to know what... Marshall says it. 
and Bobby Richardson of the Yankees and Maury Wills of the old Do Carl Erskine of the Brooklyn Dodgers and Ralph Derry, all, all these guys who faced him, Whitey Ford, back in the day and remember this stuff like yesterday. <clears throat> and I was fortunate to write a history book. It's not just a young adult book or inspirational book or, or a baseball book or a sports book. It's, it's, it's history, man. It's new history. So you picked 24 chapters, obviously, because that's his uniform number. You, you could write 240 <laughs> chapters about Willie Mays. You could do 2,400 lessons from Willie Mays. Describe how difficult it is to, to put it into 24 chapters and what you leave out and what you emphasize, knowing that so many people already know a lot about Willie Mays. Well, you know, for instance, there's a chapter on numbers in which his numbers, you know, which were put up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, how those numbers are valued today through, you know, advanced data, analytics, technology. And, you know, I, I interviewed Bill James and Rob Nyer and Tom Tango and folks like that. Um, and they broke down Eno Saris. They broke down Willie's time through the lens of today's uh, thinking. And Willie won two MVPs awards. And I came away thinking, wow, after talking to these guys, he could have won between eight and 11. <laughs> I mean, we all know about war, right? A 10 right. war season is just unbelievable. And it's done, it's been done like nine or 10 times since 2000 by hitters. Barry Bonds did it three times. Mike Trout did it three times and three or four other dudes did it once a piece. Willie averaged a 10 war season over seven straight years. <laughs> it's phenomenal. So he's and even better war, than we thought. Yeah, his war all time is behind only Babe Ruth and Barry Bonds. Babe, who didn't play against minorities, so the competition might not have been what it should have been. And, you know, Barry Bonds. And then Mays, you know, the best overall player, in, in my thinking, the game has ever seen. Because there wasn't any one tool, and this is debatable, whether you think, Josh, that he was a better base runner than hitter. Was he a better... Uh, hitter than fielder was he a better fielder than it, it, all five are pretty darn good when you sat down with Willie approximately how many times did you sit down for interviews and where would the set the scene for us where would you, where would they take place approximately how long would they take place would you have a certain set of topics that that you would say okay this is what we're going to focus on today or or describe those settings well, we did the math and we figured we spent more than 100 hours together Wow! for this project. Hours. And most of them at his home, but also at um, his, his Arizona uh, pad, his suite above the left field um, corner at the Giants ballpark. Um, different private functions when he was honored by Dennis Gilbert's scouts uh function uh every december they have the thing in beverly hills and one year willie was honored and said i'll go but i want to have my four uh teammates four surviving teammates from the 48 black barons with me they said cool so they were all honored and i was in willie's hotel room with these guys wow you know jimmy zapp artie wilson um, bill greason sammy c williams 
and Willie Mays, a couple of assistants, a couple of family members, and me. And I just was blown away. These guys were talking like they were in their 20s with a game tomorrow, who we play and who we face. And, and it, 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 was, it was unbelievable because these other four guys, you know, didn't get a shot. Bill Greeson was the first African-American pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. But the other, uh, Artie Wilson was up briefly with the New York Giants. But these are all guys who were good enough to be at least average players in the big leagues, but they never got a chance because big league teams had quotas. You could have two guys, you could have four guys because they had to be roommates. You couldn't have one or three or five. And you had to be awesome. You know, you couldn't be a role player. You couldn't be a reliever. You had to be really good. So if you were a role player reliever, we'll take the white guy. You know, as, as sorry as that sounds, that's the way it was. So these teammates saw Willie rise, and he was younger than everyone by many years because he was 17, 18, and 19 in Birmingham when these other guys were in their 20s and early 30s. So, you know, they lived through Willie, and Willie validated all of them. Willie, Willie's career validated everybody who ever played in the Negro Leagues and didn't get a chance. Oh, and, and so where did I talk to him? Mostly at home. And uh, how long? Um, I always told Willie, okay, let's make it two hours. It was never less than five. <laughs> and, you know, at, at, at the end, you know, you know how Willie is. Yeah. He, he loves talking ball. And I know enough ball to keep the conversation flowing. And, um, you know, he enjoys the engagement. He enjoys the banter. He enjoys reminiscing, talking about today's game, talking about life. So it wasn't all interviews per se, but it was time together for the purpose of the project, which according to all of Willie's really close friends, you know, his words come off in this book, like you're in the room with him. It's so him, so natural, so genuine, so organic that you could tell that his words just jump off the page. Yeah, that's Willie. Willie's telling me that. And I'm just sitting in his room with him. That's, that's the best compliment of all. I've always felt that the best reporters are extremely curious and they get really excited when they learn something that they didn't already know. And especially if they realize that very few people know this or nobody knows this. So what were the stories that got you really excited because you realized that even though a million something words have been written about Willie Mays, this was new. Hardly anybody knows this. What were those stories that really piqued your interest? Well, I don't know if this made me excited, but it gave me goosebumps when I'm in the room with them and we're talking about his early days. And imagine this kid. He graduates from high school. He just played all his professional time with the Birmingham Black Barons of the Negro Leagues. The Giants sign him out of high school. And he re reports to Trenton, New Jersey, a class B team in the interstate league. He's the only black guy on the team. He's the only black guy in the whole league. This is three years after Jackie broke the color barrier in 47. So now we're talking 1950. So a couple of those games were below the Dixon, you know, Mason Dixon line. Uh, Hagerstown for one, for one. And he had a, he had a tough time in Hagerstown. Hagerstown. And, um, he, uh, you know, he's called a lot of the same names Jackie was called. And he had to stay in his own hotel. He didn't have a roommate. He didn't have a minority roommate. 
uh, he had to go to his own restaurants. Um, he had to get to the game on his own. Uh, different dressing quarters. Um, taunted at different ballparks. And he, he looked at me and says, I didn't know if it was all worth it. And it just blew me away. I said, what, what do you mean you don't know if it was all worth it? Can you imagine baseball without Willie Mays? Um, the world without Willie Mays? He second-guessed what he was doing. And I'm thinking he could have gone back to the mills. His dad was working in the mills. That's where a lot of kids from his high school went. Graduation day, they walked right down to the mills and started working. Odd jobs. Maybe you go back to Birmingham, play with the Black Barons some more. But luckily for all of us, and you and me, and the baseball world, and all of society, it was worth it. He overcame and persevered and didn't let the bigots win. And he turned into the player he was, the man he is. Not only first ballot Hall of Fame, maybe the best player ever, but led an exemplary life that people can learn from and uh, and respect and try to emulate. When Willie Mays is telling you those stories, do you get a sense that he was emotional about them, that he was reliving them as he told them to you, or had enough time passed where he could just say it in a matter-of-fact way, or was he emotional about those? Well, sometimes he got emotional, but he's right now he's bigger than all that. Um, he, you know, he he didn't let it get to him. Uh, he didn't let the racists win. You know, he beat the racists. Bill Clinton has just a wonderful quote in the book. He said, Willie Mays made it absurd to be a racist. And so, you know, he's playing in the South. Um, he's playing, you know, he, he grew up in the Jim Crow South, the, uh, the height of the Great Depression and poverty. Uh, he didn't have much, but he always said he had enough. He had enough family. He had enough food. He had enough friends. He had enough fields. So he didn't complain. He didn't complain about the polo grounds, those crazy dimensions. You couldn't hit a homer in center field. He didn't complain about the wind of candlestick. Everything in the air to left field was blown down. And he didn't complain or make a federal case about the racism, but he fought it in his way, in, by, you know, in his terms. And he didn't get up and preach or march like Jackie Robinson, but he certainly, and this is documented in the book through conversations with Joe Morgan and Frank Robinson and Henry Aaron and Maury Wills and Bob Kendrick of the Negro League Museum and Bill Clinton himself, how much he did mean in the civil rights movement. So um, it, it, is, it is emotional stuff for me, but for him, he lived the life. And he's telling his story, and he, he, um, he overcame all that and, you know, it has, has all these lessons to tell about his life, which I can't imagine anyone living from rags to riches to greatness to prominence, whatever you want to call it. But like I said, he did it his way. And if anyone was in the way, he'd, he'd push them down, not physically, but, but uh, you know, he did enough. You know, Bill Clinton's quote, absurd to be a racist. It was like, uh, you know, if you're a bigot in the 50s, 
and watching this kid play and you're rooting for him. You know, he never got booed at Ebbets Field. He never got booed at Dodger Stadium. Uh, he was an entertainer. I mean, you came out not to see Way Mays hit, but Mays field. You know, the basket catch and, and running around the bases with his cap flying off. So when Clinton said that, it was like, you know, you're a racist and you, you, you got something against minorities, but now you're rooting for Mays. So now you go home, you look in the mirror and say, what, what kind of idiot am I? What, what, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I love Willie Mays. How can I be a racist? So that's the point of it all is, is Willie Mays overcame and through images and his joyful exuberance and how great of a teammate and person he was, you know, he may, maybe, maybe he made people, you know, realize, uh, <clears throat> you know, they didn't have to be racist. They didn't have to um, believe what they believed or do the things that they did because the great Willie Mays uh, was African-American and, and he's a hero. You mentioned Bill Clinton. You also quote Barack Obama. He gives a testimonial on your book as well. Um, when you say that you're writing a book about Willie Mays, does that just give you the opportunity to call anybody in the world <laughs> or how, how do you get Bill Clinton and Barack Obama on the phone? So when you're a baseball beat writer and you leave 10 messages, how many guys would call back? Uh, you're, if you're lucky, half. If you're lucky. Okay. So if you're a 500 hitter, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing a Willie book and I drop his name It's a, for a Willie book and I'm hitting pretty much a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody has a Willie Mays story. It could be a former teammate or opponent or a fan or a friend or a foe. There's a whole Dodger uh, uh, chapter in there about how, you know, the Giants and Dodgers, a lot more so than today, just hated each other in New York. And talking to Vince Scully, he said he, he went to the game every day praying that nobody would get hurt because they had brawls all the time. They had takeout slides. They knocked down the catcher. They threw inside. Willie got knocked down more than anybody. But you know what? He got out of the way and got right back up and was ready to swing within moments. Guess how many times the person who hit Willie the most hit Willie? The person who uh, was probably someone from the Dodgers end, you know, so you start to think Koufax, Drysdale, you know, uh, 20 or so? Two. Nobody Two? hit Willie Mays more than twice. That's respect. Drysdale hit him twice. Drysdale threw at him hundreds of times. Gibson, Gibson never hit him. Mays was better than anybody today. And most of his career, by the way, without a helmet, they just put a cap on <laughs> You had to, man. You had he. Nobody was better getting out of the way of, of balls high, high and tight than Willie Mays. I mean, the I just look back at some of these films. I said, "You got to be kidding! How did he get out of that?" And it's not he doesn't jump out of the box and point his bat at the pitcher and and complain and uh, yell at the umpire for not throwing the gap. He gets right back in the box and says, "You know, give it to me again." You know. Um, so that's, that's the beauty of it. It's, it's like, I, I'm not going to fight you. I'm just going to beat you. All right, back to Obama and Clinton, even though I love those <laughs> stories. How do you get, like, how many phone calls before they call you back? Do you get a 15-minute window? Are you told that he's going to call sometime within these three hours? Or how do you get Clinton and Obama on the phone? And Bush. And Bush. They have to, I'm not getting all Democrats now. Okay. If you look at the, the pictures uh, in the inside front cover, you have Reagan – and Obama, 
then you look at the pictures on the inside back cover and you have Clinton and Bush. So we're down the middle here, Josh. But okay. yeah, it's, uh, you go through the foundations, media requests, mm-hmm. fill in the blanks. You know, I'm not from the Washington Post trying to follow up on some controversy in the White House nowadays. I'm leaving a message for Bill Clinton and George Bush to talk about Willie Mays for a Willie Mays book. And both of these guys, born in the summer of 46, the first baby boomer presidents, both from the South, both their childhood heroes were Willie Mays. George Bush told me, I never wanted to be president. I want to be Willie Mays. Bill Clinton, when he was 10, his parents bought a black and white TV. And one of the first images young Billy sees is Willie racing across his screen. And then years later, he runs for president and he's the president, invites Willie to the White House a couple of times. They become friends and golf partners. And like I said, he, he has uh, some very powerful things to say about Willie. And George Bush, who also, you know, one from Arkansas, one from Texas. And, and, you know, Bush used to go to Connecticut in the summers to visit family. And his dad's younger brother, Bucky, took him out to the polo grounds for his first big league game. And there's Willie Mays running across the field. And years later, he becomes president, invites Willie to the White House, and they become friends. <laughs> and George Bush has very powerful things to say about Willie Mays. So, uh, I mean, obviously, Obama has a chapter uh, in itself. I mean, my goodness, Willie's quote, uh, who would have thought a, a kid from Westfield, Alabama, which no longer exists, by the way, would be riding with the president, a black, a black president uh, uh, in Air Force One to an all-star game in St. Louis, which is exactly what happened. And Obama gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And they became friends. So yeah, it's a matter of leaving a message on the foundation's website and waiting a bunch of months and being ignored and then leaving another one and waiting a few weeks and being ignored and then trying again. And then maybe getting an email and say, Hey, what's this about? And you explain it and say, get another email and say, well, president might be interested. I said, Oh, okay. We'll get back to you. And then a couple more weeks. Hey, what about, Thursday at seven in the morning. You got it. Okay. 40 minutes with President Bush, 40 minutes with President Clinton. And it was like you and me sitting at a bar having a beer, talking baseball and Willie Mays. There was nothing political. I didn't even think of politics. Obviously, neither did they. But it's reminiscing about the Say Hey Kid, uh, talking about uh, what a great role model he has been, and just kind of shooting the breeze with a couple of presidents. I just got chills because, yeah, I sat at a bar and had a beer with you and talked baseball, but <laughs> I'm no president. But, um, but, but, I, but I, love the, I love so much about that because it shows how sports bring us together. And in this time when we don't have sports to come together. And, but it also just goes to show that, well, there's a lot of things. That's why it took 15 years. That's why you missed deadline. It's because you were waiting on presidents. To well, I didn't really miss deadline. I had my own deadline. They had their deadline. And it wasn't going to be complete until we had. I wasn't just going to cut it off at 20. That would be the Frank Robinson story. Yeah. This is 24, the Willie Mays story. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I like to ask book authors this question. When it comes to the bulk of the writing, 
are you, let me write in a coffee shop. Let me write uh, when there's music on, do you want dead silence? Are you at your home office or where do you write the bulk of it? Oh my gosh. Nowhere and everywhere. Every library in my county I've been to, found a quiet corner and hung out for six hours, depending on, you know, if it was open on Fridays or closed on Saturday, you know, and I just kind of made my way around the county. When I'm out and about, I'm always taking my laptop with me and a whole stack of interviews and transcriptions and everything uh, at home, in my desk, in my bedroom, in the living room, in the uh, kitchen, um, anything that's comfortable at the moment. So there's, there wasn't one area, backyard, front yard, car, you know, while waiting for my daughter to get out of school. Um, there, there's probably 10 or 15 places I've written this book. <laughs> And that includes interviews, uh, somebody calling me back when, when I'm driving. I pull over you know, off the freeway or something or find somewhere safe. And uh, um, so it, 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 talking with that many people in that period of time, you, know, you make yourself available. And I also had my day job, obviously. Mm-hmm. I'm covering baseball for the San Francisco Chronicle. So that helped, too. I mean, I'm... I'm in the food line up at the press room at Dodger Stadium and Manny Moda's right behind me. And I turned around, talked to him, said, what's your Willie Mays story? And my God, it was just wonderful. Um, you know, just see, seeing people on the road like that. George Foster was signing autographs for kids in spring training. Just, oh my God, just wonderful stuff. Everybody has these great Willie Mays stories. And, and, uh, and that's the beauty of it. And they love to express uh, their feelings about Willie and love to share their stories. Wow. That's awesome. Um, that's, that's really cool. I, I have a brief Willie Mays story that doesn't oh, involve yours, me that this is, this is from Albuquerque and I've read about this recently that when the Albuquerque sports stadium first opened, Isotopes Park is now at the same location. They basically leveled it and started from scratch. But when Albuquerque sports stadium first opened, it was considered the best minor league ballpark in the country. And they had a major league exhibition game that involved the giants and out of respect for Willie Mays and what it meant, Willie Mays let off that day because they wanted Willie Mays to be the first batter at the mm. Albuquerque Sports Stadium. Oh, and no. Late in that game, when Willie was already out, there was a foul ball that hit a kid, and he got hurt really bad by the foul ball. And Willie rushed over to help him, to save him, uh, to give him attention, to help put him in an ambulance, to send him off to the oh. hospital, and later wrote a note to the kid and what? the kid is the kid survived. He's grown up. He still has the baseball. They got him the baseball. Uh, there was a story in the Albuquerque Journal a few years ago uh, about this guy. Um, yeah, he still has the ball, and he was a hero at school once he got to school because Willie Mays helped save him on this foul ball that hit him at the brand new ballpark in Albuquerque. Well, for the paperback, you're going to have to tell me that story again so <laughs> that I conclude it. That's that's fabulous. That's just typical. It's a kid. It's inspiration. It's helpful. It's life lessons. It's role model. It's Willie Mays. All right, I'll send you the article to make sure we put it. In, that we <laughs> no, get it no, in the I don't want match. an article. I want to hear your words. But I did. I just read. I just read it. Yeah. I didn't. I wasn't there. I, I wasn't even alive yet. You know, talking kid. about Fields, I, I spent a week in Birmingham uh, just to check his roots, check his local uh, neighborhood, check his schools, check his. Um, uh, Rickwood Field. Rickwood Field is the oldest professional ballpark in the country, built in 1910, before Fenway. 
before Wrigley. And that's where he played in 1948, 49, and 50 with the Birmingham Black Barons, and it's still up today. All the other parks, Shea Stadium, Candlestick Park, Seal Stadium, the Polo Grounds, all gone. So that's the only existing ballpark that Willie has played in from, you know, the highest levels of the Negro Leagues to the highest level in the big leagues. And what a treasure, Josh. Everyone should go there. I, w- I was there for a week, but I went there like three days. I couldn't get away. I-, I walk out to center field. This is where Willie stood in the 40s when he's a teenager. Stepped in the box. This is where Willie batted as a teenager in the 40s. And got to know some of the folks who worked there. And uh, just just terrific stuff. It- just a beautiful ballpark. And it's still used by the Birmingham Barons which is a double-A team of the White Sox, once a year they have like a, a you know, throwback game in which they wear the old uniforms, and whatever team is in town to play the Barons, that day they go over to Rickwood with seats like ten to 12,000. But they have a new stadium they built a few years back downtown that they play at uh, most. But this whole park, you know, it's, it's home for high school teams, a couple of junior college teams. They have tournaments there. You could rent it out, and it's gorgeous. As we've been talking here about all the different impacts that Willie Mays has had on people's lives and um, the number of people who you talk to during the process um, who have died since then. And it just makes me really um, just um, really grateful that Willie got to see the Giants win a World Series, that Willie got to meet all these different presidents who had an, who his, he had an impact on their lives. And now that he gets, that he's still alive as your book comes out. Right. And so I'm curious, you know, how he's doing health wise, because he is such a national treasure. Um, again, I'm glad that he it sounds like he's still really sharp, that he could contribute in such a meaningful way and that he is able to hear George Foster's story and able to hear mm-hmm. all these different people's stories about him. And every interview I did, I went to his house and read him the interview. And from there, he, you know, boom, light bulb took off on another tangent and story that he recalled from that interview. And so it was everybody kind of supplementing Willie's words as the chapters move along. But I spoke with Willie yesterday. I gave him a call just to, you know, congratulate him because two days ago the book came out, August, uh, I'm sorry, the 12th of, uh, what what month is this anyway? May. May. Yeah, so I, the baseball season usually determines, but there's no baseball season. So May 12th, the book comes out. <laughs> and so I call him yesterday on the 13th, and I congratulate him and ask him how he's doing. And he was more interested in what I thought about the book. Like, he wanted me to be happy and comforted with the outcome. And, you know, I, he, he trusted me to do the right thing. And it's funny, Josh, because there were – you know, he he knows every word that went to the publishing house, St. Martin's Press. And he would, I, I, you know, the certain passages, he, he said, you know what, John, that was supposed to be funnier. Make it funnier. Because the way I told the story might not have come across as funny, but let's work on that. So you got it, Willie. So I went back and did it again. And there were other stories where I might have left out a, a key at bat or a key element to a memory of his or someone else's. That, so he had total input, but never told me not to write anything throughout all our conversations. And it was a hundred plus hours, the time we spent. Um, but he, 
he was really engaged. All his close friends said how much he loved being a part of the process because it was a great way for him to relay his stories to a younger generation that never saw him play or maybe doesn't know about him. And really, Josh, most of the country uh, not old enough to remember seeing Willie Mays. So we're, you know, he's 89 now. His birthday was last week. And he enjoys storytelling, uh, sharing life lessons, and also uh, being a good role model for kids. I mean, he's the Say Hey Kid. His foundation benefits kids. Uh, <laughs> Halloween's like one of his favorite nights because he loves, uh, favorite nights because he loves kids coming to the door so he can give them baseballs and candy and cool things. And, um, you know, when, when, when autograph seekers come in, it's, it's often, you know, the, the parents with the kids, but he'll, he'll say, hey, bring the kids up front. I was with him at hospitals and he, he'll, he'll usually visit kids, you know, the, some cancer, cancer patients. And, you know, he knows what these kids are going through. Well, he doesn't know what they're going through, but he wants to be there for when they do go through things. And they don't know who Willie Mays is until maybe their parents explain who the great Willie is. So for, for him, he's not this great ball player, but he's just a powerful presence in the room who cares for you. And, it, it, it's, it, it, it was really touching stuff when I'm kind of shadowing Willie at some of these places. And he never talks about him. There's no newspapers or radio or TV that ever follow him into these places. He just does them and nobody knows about him. But with my access, I was just kind of able to follow him wherever he went and uh, talk to him about whatever he did. And I felt privileged and honored and pinched myself every day because of that. But those are the stories that, that we tell here. Well, this is awesome. Stories that you uh, just told us and however long this podcast has been have been uh, wonderful. And uh, you've been very generous with your time. And thank you for, uh, for your time now and for your time in, in guiding me many, many years ago. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> You're still the kid, Josh. All right. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> All right. Once again, thank you, my friend. Uh, this was awesome. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled for, for you and for willing for everyone to get to read this book. Hey, it's uh, my honor, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for uh, allowing me to talk about Willie and caring about the subject. That was John Shea, and this is Life Around the Scenes. <laughs>